I hope you all had a nice meal. It's Global Supply Chain Summit, our Global Supply Chain Week. I'm Dooner here with Michael Vincent, the dude. Hey. Smackdown you know right in the any- middle. We're at halftime right here on yeah. this heartbreak hill we call Global Supply Chain Week. And today, we just have one question to ask, Michael what's, Vincent. What's are up? you down with CPG? Hey, yeah, you know me. Who's down with CPG? Every last homie. All right, a couple, couple facts about <laughs> oh, I was very hip. A couple facts about <laughs> OPP. Very the song, the song was originally going to be called Other People's Money after the movie, after this, after this drug dealer that the guy from OPP knew, right? That yeah, was like yeah, the yeah. term. That was like the street term. But it turns out Danny DeVito in 1989, he put out the movie Other People's Money. So they changed the name to OPP. Oh, so it couldn't be OPM. It couldn't be OPM. OPM. It would be OPP. All changes of a Danny DeVito movie. Big piece of history right there. Way to there. go, Danny. In Sister Act 2, they sing, You Know Me, I'm Down with G-O-D in the final. Ah. It's a meme before a meme. Is that right? I didn't even know that. song only went wow. to number six on the Billboard 100, though. Well, that makes sense. Hey, let's it's a highlight- decent tune. Show called What the Truck. Let's highlight a trucking hero here, or a couple of trucking heroes, oh, let's right? Do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Truckload Carriers Association, they recently named truck driver Gene Carlo Gachette from West, from Chester, Virginia, as a highway angel for offering hot breakfast to stranded motorists, as well as Canadian driver Matthew Merchant. Now, if you remember that huge storm that was all up the, the East Coast, right? Yeah, yeah. Right in the beginning of January, the one that had people stranded overnight. That's where this is from. Now, take a look at this video right here. This is Gene Carlo. So he was stuck. This is the next day. So that storm started at night. They got stuck overnight. He gets out. He made some Jimmy Dean sausages for that family that's sitting right there, right? He started cooking everything he had in the truck for people. Jimmy Dean even tweeted about it. They said they love what they're seeing. Um, Another truck driver, Matthew Merchant, he's the one from up in Canada. He was named a highway angel during that same situation. He was giving people water. He was giving people blankets. He was jump-starting vehicles during his journey from uh, Montreal to Florida. Obviously, he only made it a fraction of a way before getting stuck and all that gridlock like everyone else. But thank you to those drivers out there and... uh, Great on the TCA for recognizing those. You guys can drop that now. All right, today on the show, Doug Wagoner, CEO at Echo, is talking tech and the freight outlook for 22. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Jordan Lawrence, Director of Logistics Strategy and head at the Flexi Institute. He's going to discuss uh, capacity constraints. I'm sure right you yeah. all know about that. Are they here to stay, especially in the warehouse space? We also have Christopher Thornycraft, Senior VP of Carrier Operations at Redwood Logistics. He's going to help us navigate our way through this capacity maze. David Stone, Senior Director of Transportation Management at Rider System. He's going to talk about automated pricing. Is it all hype? Are the Lobos all hype? We'll find out about that, too. Yeah, Christian Lee, go. too. CFO at Transfix. He's going to discuss record earnings and advancing sustainability. We have to thank some sponsors today. Our Universals, Ryder, Echo, Flexi, and Redwood. We have a content sponsor, which is Transfix. The demo sponsor, which is Zoom. And these beautiful coffee cups come courtesy of Redwood. Thank you very much. We also have a giveaway. So before we get down to business, should we get something away, or do you want us to wait till the end? What are they saying? They're saying give it away They're now. They're saying give it away now. No, nobody right. wants they always instant do. They, gratification. I, I, I feel like I should ask that, but they always do. I want to give you all ask. some agency out there. Yeah, but they always respond. All right. Give it away. And the winner of the AirPods Pro is none other than Gordon Baxter. He's the owner of Count Consulting. One, two, a winner is you. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Very cool. And by the way, Purple Promise, fellow Purple Promiser, FedEx is Gregory the Grosielis. He says... If you haven't, or someone says this is a quote, he says, if you haven't seen What the Truck before, I'm questioning how deep you are into the supply chain. He says, love that. I do too. If you haven't checked it out before, you can subscribe to this show wherever you get your podcasts. We're live Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays at noon Eastern time. You can watch that at tv.freightwaves.com if you prefer the video medium, or you can download the Freightwaves TV app and watch it whenever you like. Perfect, man. Talk to a guest. Uh, yeah, let's do that for sure. How about Jordan Lawrence? He's the director of logistics strategy Is and he head ready to of talk? the yeah, prestigious right. Flexi Institute. He's also an East Carolina pirate, home to PD the pirate. I don't know if you knew that, but they have some really interesting alumnus over there. They had Sandra Bullock, screenwriter Kevin Williamson, Golden Corral founder James Maynard, the WWE's Vince McMahon, and Scott Avid of the Avid Brothers. Oh, is that right? Great stock you join us going? from today. Thanks for coming on the show. 
Great to be here. And uh, that was some trivia. I don't even think I knew all those names. So I appreciate you bringing up that East Carolina trivia. Oh, yeah. It's an eclectic group under that PD, uh, the pirate banner. But I watch some pirate football when it's on. What goes on at the Flexi Institute? Are, Are you the mascot over there? What is the Flexi Institute? Perhaps I am the mascot. I do have to make one correction. We are flex with an E on the end, but uh-huh. the E is silent. It's Ooh. just the Flex Institute. And uh, the Institute is really about thought leadership, uh, examining the trends in, in both the total supply chain, but also uh, very specific to uh, warehousing fulfillment and uh, the logistics space. So uh, we do a lot of research on the market. We look at the spot market in uh, warehousing, which is something kind of unique. Uh, people think of spot market and things like truckload transportation, I'm sure you guys are very familiar with. But uh, we also look at spot market data in the warehousing space, which is kind of a new category. Um, so very much research oriented. And uh, that's what we're all about. Yeah, a lot of people don't, they, they just think warehouse, all oh, simple, goes in and out and they're stationary and everybody's got their space and that's what they keep there. Uh, as you're running the Institute or have been running the Institute, what's some surprising things that, that you've learned that uh, people may not know? <clears throat> I mean, we're living through historic times, right? I mean, you, you guys know this really across the entire supply chain space. Um, but the degree to which it is historic is really remarkable. Month over month, Uh, The tightness in the warehouse space probably doesn't get the attention that, you know, everything going on at the ports and upstream in China uh, and and with trucking driver shortages, those things are everywhere. Um, But really the the tightness and and the disruptions and the challenges in the fulfillment warehousing uh, space are are equal, if not uh, just as as large as they are elsewhere in the supply chain. And so – uh, the data is just really remarkable, and it's um, it's it's historic times, uh, just like we're seeing across supply chain space. Well, Jordan, I got to imagine a lot of shippers, CBG companies, they're asking themselves, hey, we're two years into this thing now. Why is it still so hard, or why is it getting even harder to find vacancy within warehouses? Yeah, you know, it it, it still really dates back to the pandemic, Um the, if, I think a really important chart that everyone should go and look at is the demand for durable goods by consumers. You know, people spent less money on on services, and they also created a, a large savings glut during the pandemic. All of that money pour into durable goods, and if you look at durable goods demand, multi-decade trend, nice smooth upward trend. Uh, post-pandemic, that went totally vertical, straight up. And so what that means is that uh, the, you know, inventory holding cost is just a factor of sales. And so as sales for durable goods go way up, so does the amount of inventory you have to carry. But then you add to that the doubling of the lead time for in the Asia Pacific lane. Well, even if demand stays flat, if you double your lead time for manufacturing in Asia, uh, you have to carry dramatically more inventory. So we have this kind of feedback loop of multiple macro forces and there's certainly other things uh, driving this as well, like uh, the fact that uh, when we came back from the pandemic, the the channel shift of omni-channel needing to be a very e-commerce focused. Again, you need larger footprints. So these are just three things uh, that really are absolutely exacerbating um, what is month over month lower and lower and lower levels of vacancy. You know, in major markets, it's sub 2%. Uh, nationally, it's something like 3.8% industrial space vacancy rate. The 10-year the average is around 9%. So that just shows you how far removed we are from anything that was thought to be normal in the past. And uh, we're really in uncharted territory. And uh, it, it's going to take a long time to, to resolve itself. These things are not uh, quick and easy fixes. Even if consumer demand returns to trend, well, the first thing that happens is if you have a 100-day lead time, your inventory actually blows out even more because you're not having the throughput in your warehouse. So the the immediacy of, of any kind of uh, re- resolution to this is, is, is still far off. Yeah, well, it would seem like it would. I mean, you can't just throw up a warehouse. I mean, you can do it a lot quicker than you can like a, you know, a, a microchip factory or something like that. But uh, still, you've got to build that out. And we've talked about that before, how there's certain areas where it is just – there, there's just none. And so we're exploring, uh, you know, developing in, in other places, the warehousing. So as we move forward, these constraints that are there and disrupting right now, how are those going to be uh, handled in the future? Are you just going to build out uh, more warehousing right now? What's it look like in six months? Yeah. So when, when you look at net absorption and new builds, I mean, we're 
there's tons of new capacity that's going to be coming online. But as you noted, uh, building new warehouse space is, is a year, year and a half long process, um, especially if you're waiting on materials that may or may not be arriving and then there's racking and, and things needed to outfit that warehouse space. So, um, you know, it's it's really about optionality. And I was recently at a, a, a supply chain conference that was focused on on innovation and you know, one of the core themes there is networks. And everyone now is looking to additional service partners, whether it's in the transportation space or the warehouse space, they're looking to service partners that have the largest network. And uh, what's really interesting about the warehouse space is that um, there are there are spaces that are not necessarily on the market. Maybe they're non-traditional spaces like an expo center or uh, maybe it's just a smaller mom and pop type operation that maybe enterprise clients didn't traditionally look to. But now that there are service providers that aggregate that capacity and create large networks, there are opportunities to uh, find this kind of immediate need for space that also has the added benefit of if you're an enterprise shipper, you don't have to go all in on the most capital intensive project, which is to build everything yourself, especially giving the whole backdrop here is that we don't really know where things are going to be in a year and a half from now. And the last thing you want to do is overinvest in the most capital intensive part of your supply chain. Jordan, do you think that's uh, that's happening? There's been a big push at maybe one of the toughest times to do it, which is reshoring and nearshoring. But yeah. we look at the available warehouse, warehouse space here in this country, and it's like, well, where exactly are we going to put all this stuff? What would the right. impact be if everyone just suddenly started nearshoring here in the United States? Can we handle that? I mean, I think the the reshoring versus nearshoring narrative is really interesting. Um, and, and this could be you know, nearshoring into Mexico or Canada or somewhere in Central and South America, things like that that are, that are maybe shortening total lead times uh, as, again, we're at 100 plus days in the APAC lane. Um, I, I think it's, it's, it's a trend, but these are trends that take years and years and years to unfold. And, you know, I think as we all realized during the pandemic is we're still very heavily reliant on um, you know, uh, production happening overseas in, in Asia, and that that for this to really come back is is like a decade long plus decades of process, and um, it's it's going to exacerbate the the industrial space. But I, I don't know what it means necessarily for space over the next year or two years. It's more of a long term trend, um, but it would certainly suggest that the demand for warehouse space is going to continue to be robust. And it's going to continue to be omni-channel where you need production facilities that can store large amounts of inventory, but they also need to be able to fulfill to brick and mortar. And they also need to maybe even fulfill drop ship direct to consumer, um, which, of course, demands uh, maximal space. Yeah, and that's a long-term effect, and that's a long-term trend that we got to watch and see what is happening there. But here's something that's not been long-term. It's like, boom, happened. Delivery short windows right now, delivery right now, that's got to have a lot of effect on the, the types of warehouses and where those are. Can you talk to that? How is that affected and where is that moving? Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I mean, you know, the warehouse space tightness is so acute in these major traditional markets. And when you think major traditional markets, it's you know Southern California, Chicago, Dallas, Texas, Atlanta, Northeast, Eastern Pennsylvania, New Jersey. But what's interesting is that the need for omnichannel really means to spread into these secondary and tertiary markets. And that's where the optionality plays get really interesting using um, uh, providers that can aggregate networks because all of a sudden Phoenix, Arizona, Las Vegas, Nevada, uh, you know, places in Kentucky and, and Tennessee and elsewhere, these secondary and tertiary warehouse markets are just as hot. I mean, here I'm in, I'm in the Raleigh, North Carolina area. It's a, capital city, but never thought of as a traditional warehouse market. And we're sub 2% uh, space availability. So um, it's it's really interesting how this is um, not exclusively tied into those primary markets. But at the same time, there may be options in some of these secondary markets that allow you to access things like labor pools. You look at a big piece of this is not just the physical building, but it's the operator and the ability to actually run that building and, and 
especially high throughput, which is very labor intensive. Uh, what's interesting about some secondary markets is that the the demographics and the labor force participation challenges maybe aren't quite as acute as they are, say, at the port in Southern California. And so there there is an arbitrage, there is a strategic opportunity, uh, especially in the enterprise space, to look outside of those primary markets. And there's simply a need because of exactly what you mentioned, the ability to get goods to consumer more quickly. So let's crystallize it from from your perspective over at Flex. What can CPG brands do now to keep constraints from affecting their long-term success and bottom line? It, it's We don't have the clearest picture, right? It's quite opaque looking forward. Yeah, it, it really is. I, I think uncertainty is, is here to stay. Um, forecasting is going to continue to be... I mean, no one was good at forecasting when the lead time was half of what it was. When the lead time's double... Uh, you better believe you're you're not any better at it. So um, I, what's really, this phrase is becoming somewhat ubiquitous in the uh, logistics and supply chain space is a shift from just-in-time uh, JIT to JIC just-in-case. And so I think that the strategy continues to be leveraging additional service providers that can uh, provide you with the largest, robust network of of optionality in your supply chain, whether that's transportation, whether that's in the warehousing space, whether it's forwarding like Flexport or something like that, um, that these these large network technology-driven providers are always going to be a key complement to the fixed supply chain. Are are enterprises going to continue to build out their fixed network? Absolutely. They need to. They have to. Uh, there's long-term trends that suggest we're not just going to stop ordering online, um, but having that complement that allows them to deal with the hyper-volatility, the things that we've seen, is just going to be a critical part of the strategy. Um, you know, I'm so glad conferences are coming back to, to be in person this year because there's a lot of exciting stuff happening on the tech front, and uh, that's really a key strategic shift I think we're going to continue to see this year and moving forward. Very nice. Very interesting. But uh, so I'm launching a new uh, e-commerce CPG site. When do I say to myself, I need to get a hold of uh, Flex. I need to call my man, Jordan. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is that if you're launching a new uh, e-commerce operation and and you're a small business, then your demand curve is highly volatile and to the upper right. And so you probably don't want to invest in any fixed infrastructure because you're going to outgrow it so quickly it's just not necessarily mm-hmm. going to be that. But what is really interesting, and we've, we've been with brands that have gone through the entire cycle of digital native to now more established, almost enterprise grade. And what happens is that uh, those demand patterns level out. And so you still have peaks. You still have seasonality. You still have uh, maybe it's at the end of the year where it's a traditional seasonal peak around Christmas. There is a need to have uh, complementary logistics solutions. So you want, if you have a fixed network, you want to utilize that fixed network at 85% plus at all times. You don't want your owned assets to be sitting idle. You want them always working to get the best possible cost dynamics. So what that means is that you don't build your fixed network to account for the seasonal peaks or to account for one-off demand spikes that are driven by a whole host of other factors. That's where you need optionality, and that's where Flex comes in. So uh, to answer your question, if it's a, a smaller e-commerce brand going through uh, hyper growth, then maybe Flex is a total outsource solution. But in the enterprise space, we're always a complement to that, that fixed infrastructure and really you know, serve more of a purpose in allowing enterprises to get the best cost dynamics out of their existing fixed infrastructure uh, which is really uh, something new and different and why programmatic logistics is a whole new category in uh, in the supply chain fulfillment warehousing space. Absolutely, Jordan. Yeah, that answer makes sense. Thanks for, thanks for giving sense. that to us. Yeah. Appreciate your time today. Thanks so much for joining us at Global Supply Chain Week. Take it easy, sir. Thanks a lot for uh, having me, guys. It was great. Thanks, Jordan. Why don't you tell me the E was silent? I, I did know that. I didn't know you were going to say flexi. I thought Spe- you said right, Let's just drop it. Speaking <laughs> of unicorns, you don't see this very often, but our next guest has spent almost two decades with the same company. In fact, wow. he started there the same year the Bears drafted Charles Tillman and Lance Briggs, Michael Vincent. Wow. In are fact, you kidding? his time with Redwood even predates 
the great Rex Grossman Super Bowl era of the Chicago Bears. Is that the great era? That's the Chris Rex Grossman one? Senior I VP thought it was of Perry Operations over at Redwood Logistics. <laughs> Veteran of the field, thank you for joining us today, sir. Hey, thanks for having me on, guys. This is pretty cool. I've been sitting here in the waiting room. I think that you've never had a guest fidget as much in the waiting room over here. Uh, as I have. So really excited to be here. Can I do the, like, if we're talking sports, can I do a long time listener, uh, first time sure. caller Does Absolutely. over here? Yeah, Absolutely. go for it. All right. All right. Yeah. <laughs> nice job guys. I'm putting this whole thing together. I've been watching you from, uh, watching you from the beginning. So much well, appreciated sweet. all the information. I- I can see why you've been practicing and I can hear that because I was looking on your LinkedIn. It looks like you're starting to get into content creation yourself. You just started making these Redwood rundown videos and one of them touched on a subject that we're going to be touching on today, which is capacity. But real quick, what are these Redwood rundowns? I found interesting. It was real quick. It was real brief, but it covered a a topic and and it got you through it. Yeah. I mean, you know, really it's, it's starting up. It's very, very small, obviously. Um, I think I pointed out, uh, pointed out this week. I think this is the first week I learned how to look at the camera. I'm still struggling with that now. You guys are obviously veterans, so maybe you can give me a pointer or two. Um, <laughs> don't, don't ask me. But the <laughs> idea, the idea is really, you know, there's so many topics out there, and there's so much going on. I mean, I get overwhelmed myself looking at all these things. So, what are one or two things that that we can that we can offer some real transparency on that people can use in order to make their decisions going forward, and people can point to. Realize they're not going to be on for uh, a 45-minute podcast, but really two minutes of information. Get in, get out, get on with their day, be educated, and move, uh, move forward. Yeah, excellent stuff. That's what we all need when we first wake up in the morning, right? To get it, get going on in this in this in this business. But, but you know, we're talking about shortages, limited capacity, yeah. and soaring rates. All expected to continue to grow this year. Obviously, do you do you anticipate any of this improving over the next several months or anything? Yeah, I mean, I think we're looking. At, I think we're looking at the same thing everyone else is, and that's kind of like the dirty secret out there is that everyone's looking at the same data, and we're all making roughly the same assumptions. And it's just mm-hmm. a matter of like how you execute on, on it and who you're and how you're uh, educating your customer base. You know, I, I think what we're looking at is that there's going to be uh, capacity that's going to come on into the market. There's obviously all sorts of hurdles uh, that that we can talk about, but all sorts of hurdles to onboarding new drivers and new trucks. Whether that's uh, whether that's semiconductors, drug and alcohol clearinghouse, just quality of life, etc. But the point remains that if drivers are making more money, um, that that's going to bring more people into that field. It's a unique field that uh, that doesn't require four years of college in order to make a good living. Um, based off of, ba- sorry, I'm like staring at myself trying to figure out if I look normal. So again, we're working on this, guys. Um, but you based look off of. Uh, <laughs> Hey, this is like interview. You guys are pros again. This is very easy for you guys. You, you look know? as normal Everyone as anybody else, else who's been in logistics this long. Yeah, <laughs> let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah. Lots of let's just call it a lot of late nights, right? Yes. Late nights and difficult mornings. That's uh, that's twenty years in logistics. But anyway, yeah, I, I do think that there's going to be capacity that's going to be coming uh, coming back into the market gradually, uh, very gradually. Uh, I don't think that we're going to continue to see uh, spot rates outpace contract rates the way that we have so far. Um, we've been pretty transparent with that. Uh, we do a we do a weekly newsletter, much like how you guys do, that goes out internally and gets spread uh, and gets spread externally. We've been stating that that at some point in time that swing is going is likely to take place as a lot of the variables that we've been looking at we really think are related to are really related to um, you know Omicron that was. And weather causing absenteeism, and that absenteeism has really been the uh, has really been one of the major obstacles that shippers, carriers, brokers, everyone has faced uh, at the beginning of the year. True. At this point in time, last year, you know, we I think everyone was just or cue back maybe a week ago last year, everyone was just about ready for some normalization to come on into the market, and then uh, Texas got covered in ice and shut down on power. And the rest of the country got shut down and we really had a butterfly effect event take place. Um, you know, you know, some shameless promotion for, for you guys here. But, you know, the Sonar product really details it. Take a look at the OTRI. I'm sure you've detailed this many times on uh, on your show. But take a look at that OTRI and that climb that that goes on from pretty much uh, last week, uh, last week, this uh, last year, climbing up over 27 and a half percent before coming back down below 25 percent only by really the. Uh, the end of April, and that was brief. Um, so we should see some seasonality this year, I guess is what uh, what I'm saying. 
Yeah, you know, you, you mentioned newsletters, and I was writing our What the Truck newsletter yesterday, and a couple of the bullet points I was looking at in there was that OTRI, which is at about 20%, meaning one in five contracted loads is rejected. Contract rates are about up 20% on the year, and spot drive-in spot rates themselves are a dollar more expensive right now than they were a year ago. All tough stuff. Now, we know what that means from the context of us seeing it here at Freightways, but what does that mean for you and your customers in terms of securing capacity? It's got to be a big challenge. It's a huge challenge. I mean, first off, no matter what capacity comes into the environment, here's the the flip side of the coin where we do, yes, we think capacity is coming into the environment, but we think it's highly fragmented and really, really difficult to contract as it's coming in the form of owner-operators and smaller fleets. Um, So as those owner-operators and smaller fleets come on in, we think that though we think that they are coming in for the immediacy of the, the market right now, um, that's not easy for shippers to contract. It's really difficult. Brokers have a little bit of an advantage due to some of the tools that we're able to use, and the lifespan of our relationships. You know, I mean, you guys talked about twenty years at the same company. That's twenty years of developing capacity. That's you know over thirty thousand carriers that we're engaged with. That's a lot of tools at our disposal. Not to mention our tech tools that we're using in order to in order to develop those. Uh, some waterfall routing guide uh, stability out there. Sorry, I'm like staring at how bare my walls are over here in my office. The uh, the conference room that we were having got is being is being used on up, and I'm just like, man, is that all I've got? Or just some corners over there? But that's kind of true. <laughs> no, we're, we're focusing on the content that you're providing here, man. You're blowing oh, it sure, out. Sure, it's sure, sure. Psychedelic, yeah. everything is great, dude. It, it is very yeah. difficult. You're pointing out it's very difficult to secure that capacity. You've got different type of capacity coming into the uh, the market in a kind of an opportunistic way that is there. So what is what is really the best way to secure capacity in, in this type market? Well, I mean, I, I think that you have to look at your, and this is what I think is happening, is I think that people are looking at their at their providers who have been providing consistent service and have had high acceptance, uh, have had high acceptance ratios to this point. If you have a provider that has been cutting loose early and often, I think that speaks to, I think that speaks to the level of partnership that you have. So, I mean, obviously, uh, lead time is paramount. Uh, you know, making sure that making sure that your providers have ample time to be able to provide that capacity, whether it's through a carrier or through a broker, um, you know, making sure that making sure that you have consistency to your network, which way easier said than done, especially right now as everything's up in the air. Um, you know, and, and then, you know, things I, I think the little things that everyone's talking about as far as understanding that, you know, you have you being a shipper of choice is kind of almost table stakes right now, how we engage with uh, carriers uh, as freight brokers uh, and engage with drivers and making sure that we're providing a good experience for them, table stakes as well. You know, accessorials are more important than they've ever been. They've always been important, but at this point in time, I think everyone's starting to, uh, I think everyone's starting to realize that you, you can't just put your head in the sand and pretend that detention isn't causing major issues across the entire supply chain at this point in time. So, you know, it, it's a combination of all it's a combination of all the little things that really every single time that this pops on up and it will pop up again, we will have another capacity as one capacity issue gets solved that sets up the next capacity issues that we're going to run on into. Every single time we get all these white pages that say, well, we need to be shippers of choice and brokers need to provide a better experience <laughs> over to carriers and we need to treat drivers better. And it happens and happens and happens and happens. So are we actually doing these things? You know, and that they do make differences. Well, Chris, let me ask you, how are we or how are you guys combating this detention issue? You know, it comes up and everyone's like, this is a huge issue in the industry. But a lot of times everyone right. just throws their hands up and they go, well, it sucks. And that's the way it is. But you, you got to we, we got to figure out a way to at least address the concerns, right, of both these shippers and, and carriers. How, how is Redwood addressing some of these issues that are going on with detention? Well, I think it's owning the issue uh, independent in owning the issue as the as the person who's paying the freight bill to the carrier, uh, and not and not trying to pivot back and say, "Hey, my customer won't let me do that." Um, because again, all, everyone's heard the stories over and over and over again. Hey, my customer won't pay that detention. That's why I can't do it. Yeah, you, you have to provide ownership, and you have to understand that the, your carrier's experience stops with you. Uh, so, own up. Um, own up to that uh, and make sure that that's part of your process. You know, over at Redwood, we've done a lot of review over the last year as far as what is our process? How do we improve that? How do we make this? How do we make this better? 
uh, and streamlining that so that there are we're not creating artificial obstacles to making sure that carriers that carriers are compensated fairly. Um, as far as addressing it on a global level, I have no idea. You you guys tell me. You're talking to some really smart people out there. I learned more just in the waiting room from uh, Jordan Lawrence. Than I think I'm going <laughs> to learn all week from anything else. So. <laughs> but, okay. So now uh, the, the question everybody's it's on everybody's mind, Christopher. Right now, uh, we got to ask you. What is it? Deep dish or thin crust? Yeah, you know, this one's easy to me. Um, deep dish in deep dish in the winter time, no more than two slices. Everyone knows that in Chicago, people, like people come on in and they're like, "Oh yeah, I had deep dish," and it, oh, I don't know, that's too much. Maybe it's like, it's like you're supposed to have two pieces. By the way, this is the longest I've gone without swearing in yeah. like uh, two or three years, so I'm really <laughs> proud of right. myself. Uh, and we got even into like pizza and the bears, and I haven't sworn yet, and detention for that matter. Um, but yeah, the it's deep dish in the winter time, no more than two slices. That's it. Once you pivot out of the winter, no one eats the stuff. Like I mean, that's that's for tourists. Once we're out of the winter time. Then we go into thin crust. And by the way, Lumal's Lumal's thin crust is just as amazing as their deep dish. Oh, yeah. So, uh, you know, Portillo's are underrated. underrated. Hey, all right, it's a great answer. <laughs> we, lo- we love it. Thank you so uh, much. Thank you so much for joining us on here. Check hey, out, check nice, out uh, nice coffee cup you got too, man. Yeah, aren't they sweet? That. They're sharp. sweet, man. That I have awesome. I have some of these at home too. I use yeah. these all the time. Actually, my, my entire cupboard is just like logistics coffee. Coffee. Oh yeah, if you're a you'd love it. But these are some of my favorite ones. They're nice. Yeah, you got your days. You're like, ah, I think today's a Redwood day. Bust that yeah. one on out. Every day's a Redwood day, oh. isn't it? Yeah. Well, take it easy, Chris. It is appreciate, over here. <laughs> appreciate your time today. You know, he said he uh, he said he wouldn't swear. We'll swear him. Damn those people who ate three pieces of deep dish pizza in the summertime. What are you guys out there thinking? <laughs> damn that damn that third piece. Have you ever eaten three pieces of deep dish pizza? Hey, speaking <laughs> of Chicago, okay, I've been over to this company's office before, and yeah, it is absolutely sure. beautiful. Echo, we did this show called yeah. Inside the Box a couple years ago. I got to experience my thin crust deep dish type thing. Okay. Actually, I thought I was ordering a deep dish at, uh, I think it was Lou's, the and uh, but I said a margarita, so they brought me the thin crust. The thin oh, yeah, crust yeah, was yeah, a margarita. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but I lived and I learned. But let's bring up Doug Wagner now. He's the CEO over at Echo. Doug, a lot's happened since we last spoke to you. Yeah. Hi, guys. How are you doing? I love it, man. Where are you sitting right now? Is that is that your own like home bureau, or or is that a secret room with an Echo? It's, it's a uh, invasion room where you know when the burglars break in, I <laughs> turn the the books around. It's one of secret uh, compartment. Now this is my home office. I. Uh, I haven't read all those books. My wife just puts them there because she thinks they look impressive. <laughs> yeah, the last book I read was by Bubba Fett. So, you know, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't get it done the- either. But let's, let's get into it here. So one of the things I really want to talk about first, because I haven't had a chance to hear it from the horse's mouth, is all about what happened with the Jordan Group acquisition. I, I read that news near the end of last yeah, year, sure. fall of last year. And I was excited to hear from you how that came about and, uh, and what's happened since. I thought you wanted to talk about thin crust pizza. We will. Did you agree with our our past guest, Chris, that uh, no, about his breakdown? I, no, I got to watch the carbs, so I have to go with the thin crust. Yeah, uh, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's my my dilemma. <laughs> the Jordan Company. Um, yeah, we uh, we got approached last June, and uh, I would say that the Jordan Company had been following us for a long time. You know, they of course they used to own uh, Global Trans, they own Odyssey Logistics, they own AIT, so they're very experienced in the space. And, uh, you know, they, I think they saw some value in Echo that the public markets didn't see. You know, they, they thought that the public markets were not valuing us correctly. Um, they asked us if we would consider a, a take private transaction. Um, you know, of course, my job as a public company CEO is, is to do the best job I can for our shareholders. So, you know, we engaged in a conversation and uh, they started to do some diligence and I think they liked what they saw. You know, they, they believed in our tech story. They believed in our data science story. Uh, they believed in, in our vision for growth and, and how we go about doing what we do relative to others in the industry. And uh, they, they wrote the check. So uh, thus far, it's been a great experience for me and my team. You know, we find them to be very enlightened partners. They understand the industry. They understand the cycles. Uh, very easy to work with, very supportive, and uh, it's it's an exciting chapter for Echo. Yeah, it's it's excellent stuff. So, Doug, the question though is, it's been a little bit of, a little bit of time now. Have you seen any changes? Have there been any changes made since then? You know, um, surprisingly, not. You know, we've we've uh, you know we talk on a regular basis. We're working on M and A uh, opportunities mm-hmm. together. It, it, 
you know, we've done 21 acquisitions in our own history, but uh, now that we've got Jordan Company as a partner, that's that's what they're expert in. And so as we look at opportunities, uh, they do a lot of the heavy lifting for us on diligence. Uh, but in terms of the day-to-day business, I mean, the, their main message to me has been, we like what you're doing, keep doing it, you know? And, and so Excellent. we really haven't changed anything. And if anything, it's just, you know, how can we go faster and, and accomplish our goals quicker? You've Some of the things they must have liked are some of these products you developed, like Echo Ship on the Echo Accelerator platform. Can you talk a little bit about that, how those, those different pillars connect together into one platform for the, uh, the shippers and carriers within your network? Sure. Well, it really starts before Echo Ship and Echo Drive. We have a, our, our, our kind of our legacy technology, which was called Optimizer, is over the last few years being transformed into our, our new uh, platform, which we call Accelerator. And, you know, that's a, a modern uh, ob- uh, service-oriented architecture. It, it basically refactors a lot of our old legacy systems, but gives us the capability to add new features and functions very, very quickly and rapidly, as well as to incorporate uh, data science and analytics that we use now every single day in our, in our business to, to optimize our business. So allows us to move faster. And then the Echo Ship and the Echo Drive components are really our, our carrier and our, and our client-facing uh, technology. So Echo Ship is for our shippers. You know, they can, they can uh, manage all of their transactions, get quotes, book shipments, track shipments, uh, pay invoices, file claims. Uh, and then likewise, on the Echo Drive side, it's for our carriers in order to, you know, provide their capacity to us and look for freight that fits into their network. Uh, but overall, I would say that you know, one of the things that Jordan liked is our approach to the market, which is, you know, not only technology, but it also uh, acknowledges the importance of relationships and people. And, and uh, you know, we've got a marketing slogan that we use at Echo, technology at your fingertips and experts by your side. And we really believe that's what it takes to be successful in this market, uh, especially when the capacity is tight. And, you know, the technology makes us and our clients and our carriers efficient but we also know that relationships still matter and, and we leverage those relationships and uh, both with our carriers and with our clients. And then a lot of our technology is really focused on internal efficiency. You know, how do we make decisions quicker? How do we have less touches on a shipment? And, uh, you know, and that over time uh, makes us more productive and more profitable. Yeah, that technology and the, the more efficient uh, nature of it, the efficiencies that it brings, gives you that ability to establish those relationships and those partnerships with those customers as you were as you were talking about that. Uh, the rest of 22 is kind of uh, in a fog right now as people are looking at what is going on here. Will there be a slowdown? What is going on in China? Uh, the backlog still at the ports. What's your outlook for the rest of the year, Doug? Yeah, I'm sure, you know, it's it's very similar to a lot of other people's uh, and there is no crystal ball, but I believe 22 is going to stay strong. You know, I, I was looking at my freight waves report this morning uh, talking about how capacity might be loosening a little bit, but I've got to say that's just simply on a relative basis. It's still mm. uh, tight as a drum, you know, prices are elevated at levels that we've never seen. This is a February like we've never seen. It's just not quite as tight as it was in Q4 in January. Uh, I think all the problems that have created, you know, the the tight capacity that we have are still in still in play, right? We've got, uh, you know, inventory issues, we've got supply chain issues, we've got inflation, fuel prices, uh, you know, every, everything that's added up to be the perfect storm is still in place. And, and as you know, these things take months and months, if not quarters, to work themselves out and get back to some sort of sense of equilibrium. So, uh, I'm forecasting 2022 to look a lot like 2021, and and perhaps we start to see some some relief in, in 2023. I mean, Doug, usually, like, I was just in our sonar charts, and I was looking through the, the rates and the rejections and all of those those kind of things. And usually what you see in rates is this time of year, you, you have a drop down, and it kind of resets the market a little bit, and then it jumps, it mm-hmm. jumps way up throughout the rest of the year, rinse and repeat. But that didn't happen this year. What happened in January this year was there was a very small dip in rates, and they've jumped right back up these past couple of weeks. The rejects aren't going down. So it looks like a very strong and healthy market. But my question is, when we're talking about rates that are a dollar, $1.50 more that a lot of shippers are paying than they were even a year ago, is this sustainable, or could there be other issues that arise out of this? Well, I mean, I think it's as simple as supply and demand, right? When you have uh, 
not enough supply and too much demand, it elevates the price and you've got to relieve one of those two inputs in order to see pricing relief. So, so I don't see there anything that's going to change it anytime soon. And you're right, January and February are traditionally the slowest months of the year. And, you know, we're seeing prices over $3 a mile right now in February. So that's, that's craziness. And, you know, God help us if we have a hurricane or some weather events that that we know can be disruptive later on in the year. So so uh, I just don't see it letting up anytime soon. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. The, the, the volatility is still out there for the different markets and at a very, very high level. We talked about this before with all the energy, the, the demand that's out there and the lack of supply. Small little disruptions are magnified right now, especially in, in markets that are closer to moving or volatile markets. And you can see that on a daily basis. But o- over the I mean, last... Go ahead. If you look back in uh, late 2017, sort of the setup for the strong start we had in 18, you know, it was really the catalyst was those two hurricanes that we had, mm-hmm. one in uh, Houston and one in Florida, particularly the one in Houston. And as, as you recall, um, the disruption was that trucks couldn't get into South Texas and trucks couldn't get out of South Texas. So if you think about all of the trucking companies as sort of this national network, of capacity, it was out of balance. And and what, what struck me at the time was it didn't correct itself in a few weeks. It, it was literally months for the national network to find equilibrium again. And now when you look at the issues that we have with China and the ports, uh, you know, that dwarfs what we saw in those hurricanes. So, so I think it's going to be a long time to correct itself. Now, Doug, over these past two years, uh, everyone's had to change and adapt and everything. CEO, leader of a company like Echo, how have you had to change and adapt? How has your role changed over the past two years? You know, I think one of the biggest issues has been dealing with COVID and the remote working and the changing attitudes of employees and, and trying to figure out what the new normal looks like. You know, we we like to get people in the office. We think we're better when we're together. You know, we hire uh, as many as 50 or 60 new people every month. You know, I think since COVID started, we've hired 1,600 people that have never been to the office. And so, you know, when we start thinking about, you know, that percentage of our population that hasn't got to experience our culture, you know, we feel like they're missing out on something. And we also feel like there's a lot of uh, peer mentorship that occurs. You know, when you when you come to work at Echo, you go through training. Um, and when you get out of training, you get assigned to a team. And when you're sitting with that team, you're learning every single day. And, and with, with remote working from home, you know, we don't get as much of that, you know, through Zoom and, and Teams as we do when you're sitting, you know, in, in a group of people. So I think the thing that I'm challenged with is just trying to contemplate what is the new normal? How do we get people back to work? How much do they come back to work? How much flexibility do we build in? Because, you know, employees' expectations have changed throughout this pandemic. Oh, sure. Very, very well said, Doug. We really appreciate that. Hey, people who want to learn more about Echo, where should we send them to? Well, you can send them to our website or you can send them to uh, talk to their uh, local carrier rep or uh, sales rep, and we'd be happy to help them. All right. Keep it down over there in Chicago. We appreciate your time today. Thanks for coming on. All right. See you guys, thanks for having me. Thanks, Doug. Hey, last time our next guest was on, he, he taught us a chant, right? Everyone's a lobo, woof, woof, woof. Well, so what happened though? This got me into some trouble, and I'm going to tell him about it when he when he gets on here. But I was on vacation. I won't yeah. tell you where yet. You'll find out in this story. I was okay. on vacation, and I had to go to Walmart. I forgot my swimsuit. Right? Yeah. I walk around. I'm just like randomly going like, "Everyone's a lobo, woof, woof, woof." These guys come out of nowhere. They throw me in a trash can. They roll me through the self checkout. They kick me outside. It turns out. I was yeah. in Aggie country. <laughs> they, they didn't appreciate that. David Stone, senior director of transportation management. You're in Las Cruces? Over at Ryder. Yeah, I was over in Las Cruces, over in that Aggie country, uh, on man. The way up to Massachusetts. You didn't tell me I got to be careful where I say that. Oh, that, that's too funny. I think uh, that's one chant that I have not lived down. I'm pretty sure every time I'm on the floor, somebody's calling it out in some variety. So always a fun time. <laughs> it is It is a fun one. I, I, some people know you're a Lobo now. If they didn't catch you last time you were on here, they should go back and listen to it. But if they haven't, just a real quick uh, intro on yourself. What do you do over there at Ryder? Yeah, so I'm the senior director of the freight brokerage. Uh, and really, you know, our, our role here at Ryder uh, continues to be tip of the spear, right? So Ryder is known as, you know, an 85-year-old company, been around for years and years and years in the supply chain environment. Um, and the brokerage has been a component of that. Uh, we're slowly growing this piece out um, to really bring more folks into the Ryder family. And that's really our goal is come in, try the brokerage, 
get on to other things uh, and be a part of this big piece that, uh, that is Ryder. Now, David, if you're not in pricing, you may not know how this works. If you're not a part right. of that, you just get the price from your pricing department. You're the shipper. You just see the price. But how do most brokerages in 2022 go about pricing their freight? Yeah, I think that's a good question because I think you uh, see a lot of marketing information put out about uh, kind of automated pricing. Um, and that's definitely a component. And I think that's working itself into the freight brokerage. But traditional freight brokerage is reliant on a broker uh, to be in the trenches and understand a given market, understand a given lane, uh, and be working with both shippers and carriers so that they can get the best possible rate that's out there. You know, I, I think the piece about automated pricing that kind of comes in and why it's such a hot topic uh, is because the market's so fragmented, folks are looking for kind of that quick idea, that quick fix, that quick quote uh, that they can turn around and utilize. Um, and I think for years and years, us inside of the, the brokerage have been uh, have spent hours upon hours understanding certain lanes and certain markets so that we can be the experts in that. Um, but I think that's that's really the kicker on on this entire pricing conversation is if it takes too long, you run the risk of a shipper going to somebody else. Um, and, you know, if it uh, if it goes too short and you provide a quote that maybe isn't accurate based on market conditions, well, now you run the risk of of that broker potentially losing money or something else coming up where that broker has to give back that load. Yeah, absolutely. So explain automated pricing to us. How, how does that work? Yeah, I think, I think really you got to go back in time in terms of why the whole thing started. Um, and I think one of the things I just mentioned is that hours piece. And, and sometimes it, it takes a long time to get a quote back to a shipper. Um, and so I think if you look through and you start to understand how big data starts to affect overall ability of a brokerage to scale and, and really run, um, you start to look at what that big data can provide you. Uh, it can provide you executed data. It can provide you market conditions. Uh, it can pull a ton of information into a short period of time uh, so that somebody has everything they need to turn around and provide an accurate quote. Um, and I think that's really the, the idea on automated pricing is improve the overall efficiency of providing a quote back to a customer. Uh, but the other side of it is reduce costs, right? I mean, at the end of the day, our job is to, is to try to lower those prices to a shipper. Um, and you can't really do that if you have a whole bunch of people that are spending hours upon hours trying to provide quotes. Um, and so that automated pricing allows folks to kind of reduce the amount of touches that they have uh, before they provide that quote. I think we actually did a study in the rider brokerage, and we went back and looked at all the different touches that an account executive will provide uh, just to a shipper that has called in to say, hey, I want to move a load. And it's something on the order of 10 to 15 different programs and tools that they can touch in a given period of time for, for a single quote. Um, and so you start to look through and say, well, how do, I, how do I reduce that number? How do I reduce those touch points? And that's really where the conversation of automated pricing comes in. That's where the conversation of digital freight matching comes in. That's where all that stuff starts to come in. But really, it's dependent upon our ability to grab that big data uh, and understand that data and use that data to our advantage so that we can actually do something efficient. I mean, at the end of the day, a freight broker isn't, uh, uh, isn't doing um, really what we pay them to go off and do by providing quote upon quote upon quote. They're really providing the right quote at the right time based upon all the market conditions that they can feel comfortable with that. Um, and that's really where this idea of automated pricing comes in. It seems like the market is starting to understand the value of automated pricing, and, and you can see it through some of the M&A activity. But why do you think the M&A activity and some of the collaborations have been so hot around automated pricing right now? Yeah, I, I think it goes back to that idea on big data, right? I mean, we're all looking for the data. We're looking for that executed piece. Um, I'll argue that that's what's great about the rider brokerage is we have a ton of information, not just from brokerage, but from truckload, from other areas inside of rider uh, that we can utilize and that we can drive on uh, to actually provide an accurate uh, piece of information back to, to a customer. And so I think from just an M&A perspective, we're all, we're all chasing the same thing. We're chasing that data. We're chasing the idea that if we have the data, we will win. Um, and the, the, the folks that figure that out first are going to be the most successful. And I think you're seeing a lot of companies kind of partner with folks that have big data. I mean, I, you know, I hate to call out a competitor, but you look at J.B. Hunt and you look at what they're doing with Google. Um, that uh, that's scary in any market. Uh, Google has the data, and JB Hunt is uh, is right there with it. So I think you know all of it boils down to whoever has the data is going to win in this market, um, and then how they use that data to actually provide the service to that customer is going to win.
that, that there's there's the key that second part there how are they using that data in order to provide that service to win the market and win over those customers you set up all of the the automated pricing etc there are changes and little nuances that happen let's talk about how you handle those let's talk about AI artificial intelligence how does that play in the whole thing and how does uh, Ryder tackle this issue yeah, I, I think the biggest thing, right, is AI allows you to flex and shift based upon what's going on on a weekly basis, a daily basis, a monthly basis. Uh, and I think that's fantastic. I mean, we're, we're teaching uh, machinery to operate much in the same way that it took hours for a broker to do in the past. Um, and I think that is a big component that's playing into it. Um, but I think at the end of the day, you know, we're, we're all looking for that piece to spit out and tell us what is that rate. Um, but if you don't know the kind of inputs that went into that data, uh, then you really can't understand the output on that. And so I think, mm -hmm. you know, from an AI perspective, you're, you have a lot of third-party folks that are coming out and coming with new AI-generated pricing tools. And, um, you know, they're, they're pushing those pieces out uh, to, quote-unquote, win more freight, which at the end of the day, that's, that's what brokers are paid to go off and do. Uh, but really, it boils down to that AI will teach us uh, a lot about what's happening inside of the market from a daily and weekly perspective, um, but how you take that number and how you translate that back to the relationship component with that customer, that's going to be the critical component. So I think AI is, is a tool in the toolbox, and I think it helps us get better and get more efficient. Uh, but at the end of the day, there's still a person that has to take that information that AI is spitting out and utilize that in an effective manner with that customer. Yeah, and this is freight. There's a lot of technophobes here that they don't trust AI. They don't mm. fully trust technology. They've been, and a lot of them, you have to understand too, you're talking about a lot of people who have been very hands-on with, with rates and with putting quotes together and all those kind of things. Mm -hmm. So there's a fear factor to just letting a computer do that. So let's, Let's quell some of those fears. Let's say that there is some sort of glitch. The price is wrong on the system. The broker ends up losing a little bit of money. What happens in a situation like that? Yeah, I love that question because I think that is kind of the, the end-all, be-all type of conversation that happens even, even on a floor of, of brand-new brokers uh, is nobody wants to lose money. Um, everybody's in this uh, for the, the fact that uh, you know, there's an opportunity to make money inside of this. Um, but I think you always resort back to the, the right thing from a shipper perspective is if you provide a rate, uh, that is the rate you go off of. Uh, you don't give back the load just because the rate has changed or the market has flexed in some capacity. Um, you, you don't turn around and provide additional surcharges to the customer. Um, none of that uh, allows the customer to feel good about what you're actually doing. And so I think from a broker's perspective, this is an opportunity to coach. Um, if you don't have the right inputs that are going into that rate, um, why not? What can we do to go off and improve that? Uh, from a shipper's perspective, they knew you provided them a rate, you gave them the rate, you honored that rate. Um, that's what sets you apart. And I think, um, I think a lot of brokerages uh, struggle with that component because, hey, this system told me this, I went with this, uh, but I didn't understand kind of the, the logic behind it. Um, and now I'm left in this really weird situation where I have to go back to the customer and request more money, take a loss on this, give back the load, um, and none of those sit right. So you know, to, to circle this back to what does Ryder do about this? Well, Ryder takes the loss. Ryder coaches the folks based upon the loss. And we try to understand the data even better. Um, but to a shipper, they know no different. Um, and that's, that's really the right call inside of this market is we're going after long-term relationships. We want to build those pieces out such that the shipper can say, that's the rate you guys provided. That's the rate you guys honored. That's, that's the rate I'm going off of. And I'm going to build my business around that. Yeah, excellent, excellent answer. Keep it, keep it in house, and make it a learning experience, and and keep the customer happy, and keep moving forward with that, uh, and keep that there. But let's talk about the transparency that's starting to occur between the brokers and those customers through the different integrations that you have with the TMSs and 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 the ERP systems, et cetera. What's your thoughts there at Ryder? Yeah, I, I think this is a good question too, because this is definitely a uh, a wave of the future. Um, and I always boil this back to. You know, is a, is a customer trying to ride the market waves or does a customer want that long-term solution? Uh, and I think from a rider perspective, you know, we, we strive to provide that all-year-long component, that all-year-long rate that allows the customer to, uh, to really be able to plan their business. I mean, we say it all the time, but the, the brokerage is nothing more than an extension of that customer's supply chain. Um, so we're going to come at it from a solution that allows us to say from a, from a yearly perspective, where do we want to be and what do we want this to look like? Um, and I think that's, that's really the difference between what you see in a, in a lot of different um, 
brokerages is you do have folks that are trying to ride that market wave. You have folks that are trying to kind of make that quick buck. For us, it's all about the long term. It's all about that long play. And as long as you're riding that long term um, and being that extension of that customer, uh, then really the transparency is always going to be there. They know exactly where we're at. They know what we're trying to do. Um, And at the end of the day, my service should speak for itself. Um, and if, as long as my service continues to remain high from that customer's perspective, um, and as long as we continue to build out what they're trying to accomplish in a given year, uh, then there's no questions about uh, you know, any additional information that they want to see. So Ryder can do uh, the integrations with the customer's TMS, uh, but our viewpoint has and will continue to be. It's all about that relationship, and we're going to maintain that relationship in any capacity that that customer wants. Hey, amen. And I got to say, for closing thoughts here, let's all get along, right? Let's have okay. a great year. And just Let's remember, everybody, huh. everyone's a Lobo. Woof, 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 woof. woof. <laughs> Gimmick, yeah. I like you guys. Thanks. Thank I'll you so much, it. David. Thanks for coming on. All right, we got one more <laughs> guest that's coming up. And you know what? There's a headline on FreightWaves.com that says, Transfix sees record results ahead of public listing. This yeah, company is right? just crushing it out there right now. It's Christian Lee. He's CFO over at Transfix. And Christian Lee, you only jumped on this rocket ship relatively recently. Uh, introduce yourself to us, young man. Hey, guys. <laughs> Great to be on the show. Uh, really excited about what you guys are doing here. Um, yeah, I, I joined Transfix uh, a little over a year ago. Uh, as you say, I, you know, a lot of my background was uh, sort of telecom uh, and some startups and uh, got introduced to this, to Drew and to Lily and Jonathan, this crazy industry, and was just blown away by, um, you know, what the sort of foundation of what had been built here at Transfix and just the massive opportunity, um, you know, coming out of, you know, COVID, but just the whole supply chain disruption and the ways that technology, what you guys were talking about, machine learning, you know, all of these things were going to impact this industry for the long term. And, uh, you know, just saw this was kind of an amazing chance to, to join a, a fun, high growing company in a really interesting industry. I mean, some of these financials, too, right? I mean, your yearly oh, yeah. results have to be validating over this past year when you're looking at a total revenue increase 60% from 2020. <sighs> and revenue is fine, right? But what about profit? Everyone's got to get paid. That was up 84%. Just just amazing. Um, this year, is it going to be even better? <laughs> uh, that's the goal. Um, you know, look, we, you know, we just see a ton of momentum right now. And I think it's so fascinating, the last guest you had on talking about, you know, AI, data, machine learning. The core of how we think about our business is, is data. And, you know, I've talked to a lot of people and I, I sort of continue to say, I mean, this industry generates and has generated massive amounts of data. Uh, but the reality is, for a long time, you know, both because of there weren't the compute capabilities, you didn't have things like Snowflake and database management. And then quite frankly, a lot of the incentives in the industry, no one was had figured out how to accurately, you know, capture all of the data that exists, uh, structure it, and then use it in the day-to-day, you know, how do you deliver to customers? And that's, I think, the most unique thing about Transfix is how we have been able to use not just our own data on loads that we're moving, but, you know, loads we bid on and don't win, loads that, you know, third-party data sources that we see, and really owning all that data and then translating that into a real actionable uh, service and, and um, you know, opportunity for both shippers and carriers. And that's really what's driving the momentum here. And, and we just see more and more of that. We see more people coming on the platform you saw our numbers, 148% net shipper spend retention. That means that we grew, you know, with our shippers, you know, more than 50 or 50% uh, the spend that they had year over year. We added new shippers onto the platform and our carrier base grew from 22,000 to 28,000. And that represents over 400,000 trucks now, right? And that sort of repeat rates, 93%. You know, we're doing more and more loads with our top 500 carriers. And so we just we see a ton of momentum going into next year, um, driven by all the things you've been talking about. Awesome. Awesome. The stats are unbelievable. And Christian, you don't you don't you don't get those kind of numbers unless you're driving value at a very, very high level for your customers. How are you guys providing that that drive, that that high level of of value? Yeah, yeah. So we talk a lot about the three ways that technology impacts our business. So first of all, we've taken this approach of of many-to-many matching. So we're not, you know, a broker picking up a phone and trying to, you know, cover a load and, you know, there's a carry over here. 
um, the machine learning kind of comes together and is saying, you know, company X needs to move 10,000 loads over the next six months, a year, whatever it is. We match that with the, you know, hundreds of thousands of trucks on the platform at scale. So we're saying, hey, this is the best match. This is kind of the most efficient way to do it, taking into account the needs that the shipper have. Um, you know, what carriers are going to be best on that lane, looking at the historical data, who's performed well, where, where do carriers want to be. So that matching is very different. And it's also very different than an app, you know, one load to one carrier. Um, this is, again, a, you know, many, many matching. And that's where that machine learning really comes into play. And you can kind of start to make better and better matches. The more data you have, the better the matches are, the better it is for shippers and carriers. The other big piece is we really do not believe in a fully automated model, right? And, and that's, I know, sort of an anthema for a digital freight broker mm -hmm. to say. But um, what we look, you know, everyone knows the story of Zillow when they had their pricing algorithm and it sort of went a bit wonky and all of a sudden they were upside down in a bunch of real estate and they got out of that business. So what we've built is not just, hey, here's the price or here's the best match, but it's giving our account managers and people the ability to say, well, the machine has a confidence level of nine and a half. It has a confidence level of three. And so someone can look at where we don't have a high degree of confidence, either, you know, it's a new lane, something else, say, hey, I'm going to kind of go in and look at that and make sure this is priced right, make sure this is the right match, where we have high confidence, then the machine just goes off and does its thing. And we continue to monitor the machine gets smarter and smarter. Also on the customer care side, um, you know, we are trying to automate out anything that doesn't absolutely need a human. So if it's, you know, an email can be generated automatically, that should happen. Someone shouldn't be writing it, you know, et cetera. If an appointment can be scheduled automatically, we should be doing that. But we've built tools that give our people the ability to understand, look, here's everything about this load. Here's everything about this. It's happening in real time. So when something does happen, because the reality is, you know, I-95 gets snowed in, you know, warehouses shut down, a truck breaks down somewhere. And when that happens, we believe very firmly that the shipper and care should have someone they can call who has access to the data in real time at their fingerprints, fingertips to say, hey, this is what we're doing. This is where, you know, we can, how we can solve this. And so it's both technology and human beings. And we think that's really, really important to have that together. You know, it's really, I like that you brought up Zillow because Zillow out of nowhere was saying like, hey, we need to have assets. We need to have houses and, and inventory to sell. This sometimes happens in freight. You hear about 3PLs or brokerages who are doing perfectly fine. They're like, why don't we go buy a trucking company? Why don't we go buy some assets? Why? <laughs> what are the pratfalls in bringing in assets, especially in freight from the perspective of the load boards or digital freight matching site? You can't just go out and be like, we're going to buy trucks, right? Uh, we certainly don't plan to. <laughs> we definitely do not plan on doing that. I mean, look, in particular in freight, it's a whole set of regulations and, you know, it's very different owning a trucking company and all the things that go along with that versus just being the matching platform. Um, so there's a whole bunch of regulatory and legal and insurance reasons that we wouldn't do that. Uh, but <laughs> the other is uh, we really want to be able to make the best matches possible. And when you own a set of assets, uh, there's always the, well, maybe, you know, they're going to incentivize those assets over another. And if we can be that truly neutral platform to say, hey, we're going to get you the best carriers. We're going to match you carrier with the best shipper. We're going to make sure that there's transparency. You know what's going on. Um, that we feel that relationship to be that sort of trusted person in the middle can be a huge, huge opportunity for us. And so we don't see ourselves owning assets um, ever. No, I like his <laughs> Angelo, Mike, because it also came it's from the perspective answer. of the less agnostic we become, the more biased we become. And it could either be not just to our detriment, but our customers as well, because we're no longer optimizing for what's best for them or what's best for them. Oh, suddenly we're optimizing for what's best for our own trucks because they're so cost Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, when you keep it out there with uh, keeping the assets out, outside the business. Yeah, absolutely. And we're, what I mean, assets are capacity. We're talking about capacity and a capacity yeah. crunch, right? So how does tech, the AI, um, you know, from the perspective of the digital broker yourself, how does that help? Does that solve capacity? How does that help capacity? Yeah, uh, that is obviously the, the ultimate goal of all of this is how mm -hmm. do we solve capacity constraints through technology? And if you think about it just at the most simplistic in, let's just say, the old days when it was, you know, a broker and everything was on the phone and they had a few trucking relationships and they had a few shipper relationships and they, you know, hey, I need to move some freight. OK, there is a, a maximum limit that a human being can get to where it just becomes too complex to understand all of the nuances of all of the trucks and where they're moving and the freight and the timing and everything else. And so 
there is just definitionally efficiencies that come as a result of that because human beings are great at a lot of things, but that sort of multi-network matching at scale is just beyond, you know, a human's ability to, to understand. And so what the goal is, is you build these models that say, okay, we have to move all this freight. Um, we have all of these carriers. What is the most efficient way to match this, right? How do we eliminate as much as possible the wasted miles? How do we use the machine to optimize the routes? I mean, think about sort of the classic traveling salesman problem. How do I get from point A to B to C to D to G to whatever it is as efficiently as possible? And that's what the sort of machines and the matching algorithms can do very well. But to do that, you need a lot of scale on the shipper side because you need mm -hmm. access to consistent freight that's high quality, um, you know, dependable rates. And then you need a lot of carriers. You need a, a, a vast network that can meet the needs of all of these large shippers. And so what we've seen is as we get more shippers, more carriers, the algorithms get better, the matching gets better, and you see the results like we had today with the 60% revenue growth and the 84% gross profit growth and the continued momentum we're seeing going into next year. And so it really is, um, for us, it does get better. The more shippers, the more carriers we have on the platform. Overall, you really do see these network effects, which is very exciting and hasn't, at least as far as I'm aware, existed in the freight market uh, up till now. Yeah, it certainly feels like we are becoming much more mature, even though we were last oh, yeah. year and two years ago in the freight tech market. It's been very exciting to watch this growth. We're very happy to have you in this industry. Christian, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Keep up Thanks. the great work. Thank you. you got wow. it. Thanks, really Christian. exciting stuff out of them. Really exciting stuff. And, and I liked hearing from so many of these because... So many of these companies are realistic. I remember when people were sort of like down on freight tech or business relationships. You have that old yeah, it's all relationship. It's going to become too sterile. No one ever said this isn't a business of relationships, right. but it's also a business of scale that operates at scale. And if you want to win in it, you need the right scalpel to trim that fat that he was talking trim about. Right? <laughs> Find me on Twitter at Timothy Dooner. Find him at Vincent the Dude. Subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast. Look up What the Truck. Download the Freightways TV app. Watch us in HD. If you haven't registered yet, register live.freightways.com. You can win something. You never know. You can win the EarPods Pro. You can win all sorts of stuff. Hey, dealing with imports during turbulent times. Caitlin Murphy, Gray Sharky coming up next. Done that plenty of times. A lot of headaches on every end of the phone. Amen. You just want to throw it. Continues. What are you going to say? Peace and love, everybody. Peace and love.